a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Utah Weekly Forum, a public affairs show dedicated to learning more about the issues affecting our lives and health and exploring the resources available in our diverse communities to help. Here's your host, Rebecca Cressman. Well, welcome. And you know, today we're going to delve into history. And it is a history of Utah. It's a history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's a history of the immigration, the history of, of so many chapters of America. And it's the Mountain Meadows Massacre. A horrific atrocity where pioneers, settlers in southwestern Utah slaughtered, killed defenseless men, women, and children who were immigrating uh, to California on a wagon train in 1857. And I brought into the studio Richard Turley. Now, Richard Turley has worn many hats over the years. And in this capacity, Richard, you are the co-author of a, a book called Vengeance is Mine, which is book two of a deep look at the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Is that correct? Yes. 23 years ago, two authors, Ron Walker, Glenn Leonard, and I started a project to write about the Mountain Meadows Massacre by shining a light in a dark corner, if you will, looking at this with full transparency. that This type of topic is very draining. And so after a few years, it became clear my co-authors were running out of steam. And so we decided to cut the project in half and make two books of it. The first book was published in 2008. It was called Massacre at Mountain Meadows. The sequel to that, which we promised in 2008, is the one that's just been released, Vengeance is Mine. And my co-author for this volume is Barbara Jones-Brown, who worked as an editor on the first volume. I want to talk a little bit about why it was important to you as a historian to participate in giving the full, accurate depiction to the best of your ability on what happened with the Mormon pioneers who were living in Cedar City at that time in 1857 and as that wagon train is coming forward and the massacre that ensued. Why was it so important to delve into that and document that? Two reasons. First, when I became the managing director of the Church Historical Department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 1986, we were just beginning a process of bringing together the descendants of the victims and the descendants of the perpetrators, as well as the National Forest Service and the state of Utah, to create a monument that was erected on what's called Dan Sill Hill at the Mountain Meadows. That was dedicated in 1990. Then in 1999, we dedicated another one. And throughout this process, we became familiar with these people, these descendants, none of whom had anything to do with the massacre, but all of whom were good-hearted people. And so we felt it was very important to open up the subject, which had sometimes been considered taboo in some circles, particularly in southern Utah and northern Arizona, and to provide full transparency, to shine a giant spotlight into a dark place, if you will, to gather everything that could be gathered about it and then to tell the full story regardless of what the outcome of that story was, regardless of where the chips fell. And number two, it was personally important to me as the managing director of the church historical department because I had a feeling that people were afraid of some aspects of Latter-day Saint history. 
And I felt if we could tackle the most difficult issue, which is the Mount Meadows Massacre, then we could tackle anything. Wow, that's powerful. And tackle it, you did. We did indeed. And if I had known when we began how much work would go into it and how emotionally draining it would be, I might have hesitated a bit. But I I still think I would have done it. And now that it's over... I'm very glad that we did it. Now, anyone who has participated in research where you're going through documents, and I've heard you say that you found shorthand written in the old Deseret language. I mean, you guys were going back looking for as much firsthand uh, original documentation that you could find to help piece this story together. That's a lot of work, but it's the content that you were unveiling as well that was emotionally difficult. Is that right? Yeah. So it was challenging to pull the material together. We ended up doing research in 31 of the 50 U.S. states plus three national archives facilities, one in College Park, Maryland, one on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., and one in Denver, Colorado. But this is a topic that sucks the air out of a room. It's a topic that sucks the life out of you when you research it. It's a horrible, horrible event. And my co-authors and I experienced nightmares I had times when I would occasionally zone out in the middle of the day and see myself at the Mountain Meadows and want to run out and wave my arms and yell at people not to do it. Also, as we've developed bonds with the relatives of the perpetrators and the victims, particularly the relatives of the victims, it's become clear to us that it's important for the process of healing and reconciliation First of all, to tell the absolute truth about what's going on. And then second, to memorialize those victims whose bones still lie at the Mountain Meadows. Um, somewhere between 85 to uh, to 100 were, were killed, or how many are we looking at? The exact number is not known. The number 120 was bannered around from the, from the very beginning in 1857. We have the names of about 80-some that we are fairly confident about. And the number probably lies somewhere in between. We're going to talk about your books uh, throughout this interview. But one of the things I always I thought was very important when you talk about being transparent is that you were the final editor, you and Barbara. It was not. This book did not go through what's called correlation, which means approval from the church church's correlation department. You are publishing what you found and what you wanted to write. The church leader at the time we were doing all of this, when we launched it, was President Gordon B. Hinckley. He had gone to the Mountain Meadows not long after Juanita Brooks published her path-breaking work on the Mountain Meadows Massacre, and he had taken his father with him, who was a writer and historian in his own right. Would that Brian, have been in 1950s? Yes, okay. uh, Brian S. Hinckley, and, or possibly early 60s he went there, uh, around the time he became an apostle. And they were both moved by what they saw there. It was a monument built in 1932 that wasn't terribly old at the time. And I think President Hinckley resolved at that time that he would do what he could to help the people who were killed. And so in the 1980s and 1990s, when we began to build monuments in that area, he took a personal interest. So when I came up with this idea of writing a book, I was not about to start onto this project if I couldn't finish it the way we wanted to finish it, which was that we would have full editorial control. We'd let the chips fall where they may. So we went to President Hinckley, and he pulled together other church leaders, and we made a proposal that this be handled in an extraordinary way for something that's church-produced, that we as the as the writers would have full editorial control, that we'd let the chips fall where they may, and that it would not go through the normal correlation process. And they honored that. And the result of it, I think, is a, is a superb set of books that provides wide open, full transparency. 
let's talk about for those who are learning, because generationally, you know, my kids will learn no less about it than I learned about it because uh, we don't live in Southern Utah. It hasn't been a story that we've often talked about. But as I've begun to read Vengeance is Mine, and as I remember reading back to the first book, um, I started thinking about how this story is important for all of us, for all generations, because it's a story that could happen uh, and has happened before and could happen again. And so we need to understand fully the context of what happened at this time and the impact that it had on not just the victims' lives, but the sur- those perpetrators' lives as well. So much to learn from this. So if we go back to 1857... In September of that year in Utah, what was the context? What was happening that would have heightened the uh, aggressiveness and the fear of those people living in southern Utah that they would have been motivated to do what they did? Sadly, mass killings have occurred throughout time and throughout the world. And there are generally a series of factors that come to bear that cause mass killings. One of those is that the the environment at the time is very unsettled. In 1857 in September, the Utah War was going on. The Utah War was a conflict between the territory of Utah and the federal government in Washington, D.C. at a time before the Civil War in which it was really settled who had more power, the states or the federal government and the territories of the federal government. So at that point, the – People in southern Utah were feeling a tremendous amount of uncertainty about their future. Uh, The U.S. Army was on its way to Utah. Many of the Latter-day Saints who lived in Utah felt that this was a a renewal of persecution they'd experienced in Missouri and Illinois. And therefore, they feared for their lives. They feared for the safety of their families. And the folks in southern Utah had heard that a branch of the army had broken off and might be emerging from the mountains east of them at any time. So they were considerably on alert. On alert. When people face this type of uncertainty, they are then more inclined to believe unsubstantiated rumors and to become rather edgy. And that's what happened in this particular case. They began to hear rumors. They began to treat the company that was coming through, which was just a a normal overland immigrant company. From Arkansas. From Arkansas Mm -hmm. on its way to California, made up of young families, mostly women and children with, with of course, uh, husbands as well as some single men who were drovers. And so when the company got to southern Utah, because of this tension that existed, the people in southern Utah began to treat them as the other Mm. and to vilify them and consider them the enemy instead of considering them as friends as they might have done in some other circumstances. And the reason this is important to us today is that if you look at social media in particular, you see that we live in an age in which people are tending to polarize. And in the process of polarization, they're beginning to vilify each other. And polls also show that in this polarization, people on each side are more and more willing to use violence to go against the other side. So while we might not have a Utah war situation here, we do have a situation in which people are more inclined to believe rumors about people who differ from them and then to take action based on those rumors. So I think one of the great lessons from this book is be calm, love your enemies, Treat those who are different from you not as enemies but as potential friends. Accord people the right to believe in a way that's different from the way that you believe and to have views that are different from the the views that you have without getting angry, without vilifying. Instead, be civil. 
And that's very powerful. I, you know, I, there's a research center, the Pew Research Center. And over the years, I will check in on that because they do snapshots on who we are as Americans. Who are we trusting? Who are we distrusting? How do we feel about those who are different? How do we feel about those who are in power? How do we? And it has been um, very apparent that the polemics have driven our communities further and further apart. And the, the further apart we are, the more we misunderstand each other and each other's motives. And so your description is, is right on point. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. And we don't often recognize that our own personal biases very much affect what we believe and how we feel towards other people. We often accord ourselves the benefit of the doubt but we don't accord people different from ourselves that same benefit. And what we need to do is treat everyone the same, to be kind to one another. In today's polarized world of you know polarized viewpoints on a wide variety of subjects, including politics, what people have to do is to recognize that reasonable minds can differ and that we can create a society in which there are varying points of view and yet people can still get along in a civil way. And that there might even be benefits from having different points of view. <laughs> and in fact, yeah. having different points of view proves to be a benefit in a case like the Mount Meadows Massacre. As we studied the environment of, the, of 1857, what we found is that when people of the same point of view got together in meetings and no one spoke up to give a different point of view, they were more inclined to drift off into the extreme type of behavior. When they met together in a council meeting and people spoke up and expressed different opinions, then they were less likely to do anything wrong. And that's very consistent with the historical research on this on this topic. You, you need to have a wide variety of people who are expressing their opinions. In the case of something as horrific as a mass killing, there may be somebody who suggests doing something like that. And if others don't speak up, then there's a kind of peer pressure, a group think, if you will, to say, well, I don't feel good about this, but if nobody around me is speaking up, then it must be my problem. Mm -hmm. No, in fact, it's not your problem. Many people feel the same way you do, but unless you speak up, no one's going to know. So those moderating voices are so important to elevate during times of fear and distrust. Even it's, They're even more important at that time. They're important, and the Mountain Meadows Massacre teaches us the importance of councils. As we look at the events that occurred in southern Utah, when councils met and people spoke up, they generally came to the right conclusion. When people tried to avoid the advice of councils and act rogue, if you will, then generally they went down the wrong path. And that's the story of Mountain Meadow Massacre. Because from what I understand from your research, as this party, this wagon train is here and they've got them in southern Utah and they ride up to Brigham Young, they write a letter, what should we do with these? His response is let them go if they will in peace. Tell us more about what happened. So in this tension between the territory of Utah and the federal government, Brigham Young felt that he needed to stop the army from coming into the territory 
because, again, they worried about the safety of the people. So he had a number of ways of trying to do that. One of those ways was to send Lot Smith and other members of the Utah Territorial Militia, the Navajo Legion, to attack the civilian companies that had the supplies. They were essentially government contractors. They were providing supplies for the army. They weren't military themselves, but they were civilians who were providing supplies to them. He had a similar policy in which he wanted, all through along what we now call the Wasatch Front, he wanted local native groups to go to these companies and run off their cattle. Now, in the process of doing all this, he wanted no bloodshed because he knew that if blood were shed on the territorial soil, that would give an approaching army an excuse for doing the very kind of thing that he didn't want to happen. Something went awry in southern Utah, and it appears that part of that is is that there were no dissenting voices who were willing to speak up. Mm. Part of it was they ignored counsel because when councils met, they were making good decisions. Part of it was they made very bad rationalizations. So one of the rationalizations was that, uh, well, we're going to go attack this company. And once they attacked the company, they killed people. Once they killed people, they thought, well, if we let them go into California, they're going to raise an army from the west that's going to pinch us at the same time, an army from the east is coming. We'll be caught in the middle. It's either our families or their families. So they then made the horrible judgment that they would go out and wipe out anyone who was old enough to tell the tale. Mm. Now, if they thought this through carefully, they would have realized that when a large wagon company doesn't show up in California, somebody's going to miss them. And once they miss them, they'll go back and find out what happened to them. So part of their part of the rationale was to say, well, we'll try to make this look like an Indian attack. That was doubly bad because many of these people that they were going to blame for their crime were their fellow neighbors and even church members whom they cajoled into participating with them. The members of the Paiute tribe that they now incriminate by bringing them into that violence. And then the Paiutes are blamed for that violence. They're blamed and they have borne the brunt of the responsibility for this for far too long. The responsibility belongs to the white southern Utah planners who arranged all of this and then who sent people out to the Mountain Meadows massacre, out to the Mountain Meadows to carry it out, and those participants, of course, on the ground as well. So as this massacre occurred, and it didn't just occur on one day, correct? There, there was kind of stages to the Mountain Meadows massacre? The first killings occurred on Monday, September the 5th. And the irony is that when when Isaac Haight, the leader in Cedar City, met with his council on Sunday and they disagreed with his decision to to raid the company, he sent out two people to pull off John D. Lee and those who had been sent to the Mountain Meadows. They didn't arrive in time. They They arrived after the initial attack in which several people died. At that point, there was a desire to sort of contain the situation. The immigrants who were attacked circled their wagons and tried to defend themselves. You can imagine if if you were in that wagon Uh, company and suddenly Mm -hmm. you were attacked. And then they're under siege for five days without water. People try to go get water and they're shot at or killed. And so finally on on the fifth day, Friday, under a white flag, John D. Lee and William Bateman, they go and approach the company. And John D. Lee goes into the wagon company and promises them protection under white flag, saying that they're going to be taken to the settlements to places like Cedar City. And then when they're strung out along the road, the members of the territorial militia fire on them when given a signal. So this is a this is a betrayal in many ways. And it's a betrayal that occurs in this environment in which people are behaving in ways that they ordinarily would not behave. 
It turns out that most societies through time have two sets of, of bodies of ethics. One is what you'll call peacetime ethics. And under that body of ethics, almost every society follows the rule you can find in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. But when they shift to wartime ethics, then, of course, killing becomes allowed under certain circumstances. So here's a case in which people in southern Utah shifted from one to the other and used various rationalizations for what they did. Once it was over, however, they regretted what they had done and began to backpedal quickly and try to figure out how to hide it or how to condone it. Let's talk about the cost. Um, As you shared at the beginning of the interview, as you and Barbara went through the accounts of that massacre, um, you can envision it in your mind. And those scenes continued to play, uh, causing nightmares and that idea of why couldn't have this been stopped. So the massacre occurred September, finished September 11th, 1857. But the pain carried on generationally. So you had their ancestors and their family members in Arkansas. You had the Paiutes who had been... Um, you know, uh, brought into this and incriminated. You had those who were a part of the massacre that did not want to participate in the killings. You had uh, small communities trying to keep secrets. You had, I, there were so many levels on this. And it, how many years before the truth of what happened starts to come out? The truth begins to leak out almost immediately, but it leaks out in small portions. And so because there are so many accounts of what's going on and because people have biases, they accept the pieces of information that come to them in different ways. So there are some federal people who, with help from native investigators, begin to find out about what happened and they come up with a pretty good conclusion. But those in Utah who have friends who participated in it and who are hearing different stories, they want to believe their friends. They don't want to believe that their fellow their fellow church members, their fellow neighbors could do something so horrible. So they believe the stories that they tell that are lies. And that lying continues for some time. Ultimately, by 1859, Brigham Young is not feeling confident in the stories that he's been told. So he begins to talk to federal investigators and say, you should investigate this in federal court. I will do what I can do to bring in the suspects and the witnesses for this, but it needs to be cleaned up. For reasons that we explain in the book, many of which are political, it doesn't happen until 1876. 20, almost 20 years after. Almost 20 years afterwards. Mm -hmm. And ultimately in 1874, under a new law that had been passed by the U.S. Congress, the Poland Act, a grand jury meets and indicts nine men for their roles in the massacre. Five of those are arrested. One of them, John D. Lee, is the only one who's fully prosecuted and then executed for the crime. This is a crime carried out by between four and five dozen local people. And so there were many others who deserved punishment. Brigham Young was meeting with an army officer and talking about this in around 1866, as I recall. And Brigham Young is saying, I want this investigated and cleared up. And the army officer says, even if, even if it's not cleared up, these people will ultimately pay the price when they get into the next life and are at the judgment bar, to which Brigham Young said yes. So in our book, we track what happens to the perpetrators as well as to the victims. Many of these perpetrators um, suffer great mental anguish for what they've done, tremendous guilt. 
Some are more calloused and don't seem to do that. They, they try to rationalize what they have done. Communities as a whole, in fact, much of southern Utah, continues to struggle under a burden of collective guilt that continues well into the 20th century. In 2007, which was the 150th anniversary of the massacre, at a memorial service at the Mountain Meadows, then Elder Henry B. Eyring, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, read a statement from the First Presidency in which the First Presidency said that because of the research we had done for the first book, which was just about to come out, they had learned more than they had ever known before about the massacre, and they expressed profound regret for what church members did on at the Mountain Meadows and also a similar burden of regret towards the Paiute people who had un, inappropriately borne that a responsibility because of the blame that was put on to them by the people who were most responsible. In other words, newspapers across the nation with depictions of uh, stereotypical depictions of Indians creeping on the hills, preying upon uh, the wagon trains when it was the Mormon pioneers that were preying upon the wagon trains, not just this wagon train, but others that came through that year. Well, and I interviewed Paiutes who talked about going to school in the 20th century mm-hmm. and having their fellow classmates who were descendants of those who carried out the massacre, calling them wagon burners and placing the full responsibility on them. So it continued to affect people and still does continue to affect people. My goodness. We have only about three minutes together. Uh, For those of you who joined us, it's Richard Turley. He's the co-author of the new book called Vengeance is Mine. What is the subtitle? It's the subtitle is The Mountain Meadows Massacre and Its Aftermath. And Its Aftermath. And um, the book is available many places. I went to Desert Book to get my copy. But before I let you go, why is this a book that is important for all to read? It's important for all to read because the same types of factors that gave rise to the massacre give rise today to a lot of tensions that exist among people, and it's important that we learn not to vilify others but to treat them civilly. It's important because the perpetrators and of, of the massacre and the relatives of the victims now number probably in the hundreds of thousands, and it's important for there to be healing and reconciliation. Healing and reconciliation will not come about unless there's a full and open acknowledgement of what happened, which is what this book and its predecessor does. It provides a full and open acknowledgement. And then second, there needs to be a recognition that this is a subject that should not be forgotten. There, are, The bones of these people still lie at the Mountain Meadows with the sponsorship of the church and the encouragement of the relatives of the victims, particularly the Mount Meadows Monument Foundation, which came up with the idea. And the, and the church bought the land and, and hired a consultant to make sure that this could become a preserved landmark in the country. That's right. The church only owned two and a half acres around the 1932 monument, but with the encouragement of the relatives of the victims, has now purchased hundreds of acres of land and has had that turned into a national historic landmark so that we will never forget what happened there. And I hope that all of us can understand what happened and learn the lessons of history. Well, thank you for uh, releasing such a powerful book. As I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, it's Utah's history. It's history of the of Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, of immigration at that time, the West, wartime. It's our history. And it's the history of the United States of America. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's edition of Utah Weekly Forum. 
Utah Weekly Forum is produced by KSFI FM 100.3 in Salt Lake City, a Bonneville International Station. Subscribe to the Utah Weekly Forum podcast online and email us at Rebecca at FM100.com. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.